Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for those kind words of introduction and affirmation. Uh, I have to confess that um, when I was here, when Dr. Aiken arrived some 15 years ago, I was a first-year Ph.D. student and uh, was somehow uh, blessed enough to be providentially adopted to study under him. And I can tell you his love for, uh, to create and to, to help uh, train pastor theologians uh, inspired me, challenged me, and really did change the trajectory of my life in ministry. And I'm uh, forever in, indebted to his investment in my life. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I'm not just grateful to be here, it's kind of a nostalgic part, but I'm grateful to be here now in the present as my wife and our family has reacclimated uh, to the area over the last year. We've been uh, just really overwhelmed with the, the familial welcome that we've experienced here. Um, you know, there's not a time in our marriage that we haven't known Southeastern as part of our family. We were married my second week of classes here for my uh, MDiv. I didn't meet her on campus and marry her two weeks later. Uh, no, I, I, in fact, I, I met her uh, several years before, but discerned God's call uh, to ministry uh, prior to the time or just prior to the time we were going to be uh, married. You know, Dr. Aiken mentioned my brother-in-law who's here as well. Um, so grateful for Benji, but we were actually roommates at NC State. In fact, I married my roommate's sister. So students, take note of that and uh, take from it what you will. It's worked out well for me and uh, you can learn uh, from that. Uh, but uh, during my time in getting to know Benji and then getting to know his sister, God providentially orchestrated circumstances that we might come together as husband and wife. But before I did that, I had to also get to know her other two older brothers. Now these are two significantly older brothers. They're significantly larger than me and they're significantly older. They're 10 and 12 years older than her. And I didn't have the privilege of rooming with them so I didn't know them quite as well. But I can tell you the moment that I finally realized I was in. And it was actually the, the day before we were gonna be married. It was at a rehearsal dinner. And at a rehearsal dinner, uh, the oldest brother uh, stood up and he shared some words. You see, their father had passed away about 16 months before uh, we were married. We weren't even dating at the time. Uh, but Luther stood up on that night to share some words as the somewhat of the patriarch as the family. And as he did, uh, he shared some words of uh, commendation. You can imagine that he shared some words of admonition and maybe even some words of caution as an older brother would do. But he also shared some very kind words of affirmation when he said this, he said, uh, daddy can't be here tonight to extend to you blessing on your marriage. But I can tell you this, if he was here, he would have chosen somebody like you to marry his little girl. That meant everything to me because essentially what he was doing was he was extending his arms to me and he was saying, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. And that has meant everything to me throughout the years. You know, the similarities between that and, and Paul's letter to the Colossians may not stand out to you, but they stand out to me because what Paul was doing when he penned his letter to the Colossians was much of the same thing. He was extending his arms open to them and he was saying, welcome to the family. 
Most people don't recognize that Paul had never actually met the believers in Colossae face to face. He says as much at the beginning of chapter two. And so as Paul is writing to them, he's writing much to second generation believers. He's writing to those who were his grandchildren in the ministry. He's writing to them from prison in Rome and he's wanting to welcome them to the family. And he wants them to give them words of admonition. He wants to give them words of caution, but he also wants to give them words of affirmation. You see, when we read the letter to the Colossians, we often read it with this black cloud hanging over our heads, this black cloud of this Colossian heresy that's somewhat nebulous, somewhat undefined, and we we read every word as though the, the raindrops are falling from that cloud onto the letter as though we have to read in light of or through the lens of that heresy that we can't even really precisely define. But to do that is to import and to impart meaning that's not there. You see, that was one element, and certainly in the letter, Paul addresses directly aspects of the Colossian heresy, but there's lots of other reasons why he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Primarily, one of the reasons is that he was welcoming them to God's family, and he wanted them to understand what it meant to be a part of God's family and all the privileges that came along with that. Because the privileges that come along with being a part of God's family would prepare them. They would be the the source for the joy they would experience in life. The privileges of being a part of God's family would be the, the foundation for their faithfulness to Christ. The privileges that come from being a part of God's family would serve as the, the anchor for the, the hope and the perseverance that would allow them to serve throughout their life in ministry for Christ. These privileges are the privileges that we share. You see, what we have to recognize is that when God adopts us into his family as believers in Jesus Christ, he does so so that we might share in the divine privileges of our salvation and to participate in the mission of the gospel. In the first eight verses of his letter to the Colossians, he essentially reminds them of these divine privileges with open arms saying, welcome to the family, now understand what that means. So if you found your place there in Colossians, let's understand what God intends for it to mean for us as well as for the Colossian believers. Beginning in Colossians 1, verse 1, the Bible says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to your word now and submit our lives to it asking you, O God, that you would expose our hearts, Father, before you, God, that you would teach us from your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, your Son. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. This morning, I want us to understand the divine privileges that Paul reminded the Colossians of. In fact, he was informing them of what they possessed in Christ. And as he reminds us of what we have in Christ, these divine privileges, much like it would for the Colossians, will serve to stimulate our faith to reinvigorate our faith and to motivate our faith. 
What are the divine privileges that we share as members of God's family? The first one I want you to see is this. As members of God's family, we have reasons to be glad. As members of God's family, we have reasons to be glad. Now, you couldn't necessarily tell it by walking into an average church on a Sunday morning. But when you look at the faces of Christians, it ought to be a people that is inspired to be glad. There ought to be happiness, contentment, joy that floods our heart and floods our soul and permeates our existence as God's people. But keep in mind that Paul was writing the letter to the Colossians from very dark and difficult circumstances. As he's writing in prison, how was it that Paul was able to muster a tone of joy? Later on in chapter 1, beginning in verse 24 and 25, in fact, he would tell them that he was rejoicing at the sufferings he was partaking in and sharing on their behalf. He would reiterate that in chapter 2, verse 5, as he talked about rejoicing for their sake through his circumstances and through his trials. The tone of the letter to the Colossians has this, this, this joyful, affirmative, kind, and, and content element to it. Very different from some of the other letters Paul wrote. For instance, when he wrote the letter to Galatians, it comes with kind of both barrels blazing. He comes ready to confront them, to charge them, and to challenge them. With the Colossians that he had never met, he comes with a familial tone. And he surrounds them with love and encouragement. He reminds them that they have reasons to be glad. What were the reasons for their gladness, for Paul's gladness, and even for our gladness? First thing that we can celebrate by way of being glad so we should celebrate our personal calling. We should celebrate our personal calling. Look at how Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, announcing himself just like you would in any beginning of a letter, then with his office as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That term, the apostle, is one who is sent out, and it definitely comes with an authority behind it. That would be important as later he'll address some doctrinal issues that will be significant, and he'll need the weight of his office as an apostle to be behind him as he speaks to these things. But recognize that he didn't do it in a boastful or prideful way. Notice how he modifies it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, while he has authority, he's not the ultimate authority. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by his own doing, but by what? By the will of God. In other words, he didn't choose this calling for himself. It was chosen for him. He told Timothy the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that God considered him faithful and appointed him into his service. Paul recognized his personal calling, that it was by the will of God, and he was serving ultimately Christ Jesus. But notice that what he also does is he includes Timothy, our fellow brother. Timothy, our brother, at this point had not elevated himself by way of position or status. He had not begun to pastor the church at Ephesus. He had not had two epistles written and directed in his name. No, he was just simply Paul's travel companion and assistant. And yet Paul doesn't relegate him to the corner. Paul elevates him in co-sending status with him. Later on in chapter 4, Paul would say, I write this letter with my own hand. But here he introduces it and he says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God with Timothy, our brother. See, Paul's understanding that his calling and Timothy's calling fit together as that which is universally true for all believers, that we have a personal calling. He would go on to describe later in our passage Epaphras, and he would mention him in verse 7 as a faithful servant, one who was serving alongside with them. All of these brothers, then he addresses to, in verse 2, the saints and the brothers and sisters in Christ, they all have a personal calling, and can I tell you this this morning? So do you. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have a personal calling. God has, has created you. 
He has converted you and he has called you for a specific purpose. Whatever that purpose may be, it's going to be different for you and for me. Maybe it's as a church planner. Maybe it's as a pastor. Maybe it's as a missionary. Maybe it's as a school teacher. Whatever that calling is, it's unique to you. And that personal calling is part of your salvation. Paul is reminding you of that today. God's reminding us of that today, that we have a personal calling that we should celebrate. Say, well, why is that important? Because there's going to be days in ministry that you're discouraged, that you're overwhelmed, that you're overcome with emotion and heartache and headaches. But in those days, in those moments, I speak even from personal experience, in the darkest days of my life in ministry, it was God's calling that held me close. It was the affirmation of knowing that, God, this is what you've called me to do that enabled me to persevere. In those dark moments, you'll begin to resent that calling until you learn to embrace it. It's when you learn to embrace it that you find the deepest joy and the satisfaction that God, you have created me and called me for this purpose and it is being fulfilled that I simply remain faithful to you. Praise God and celebrate God for your personal calling. You see, personal calling is also not defined by a position or a status. You see, many people only find that they can celebrate when God's calling leads to prominence. But that's not what Paul was doing. You see him elevating Timothy and Epaphras and himself all in the same group with the saints and the brothers and sisters at Colossae. It's not position or status, but God's calling does offer purpose and significance. You have purpose and significance because you have been called by God. To what specific calling that is, Paul would later go on to pray that they would begin to discern that with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We're called to do that too, but I want you to understand that you have a personal calling that you can celebrate. But Paul doesn't relegate our Christianity to an individualized understanding. Yes, we should celebrate our personal calling, but look what else he says. We should also celebrate our spiritual community. We all as individual members of the body fit together with one another. So in verse two, he directs it to the saints. Those are the believers at large. And later on in the letter, he would uh, express his intention that the letter was meant to be circulated and shared. But he also directs it to the specific believers there in Colossae, to all the saints and to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. What this means is that we will begin to experience and fulfill our spiritual personal calling through our spiritual community and the body of believers that is the local church. Therefore, he commends to them grace and peace to you from God our Father, operating under this calling, the one who has called each one of us. We can celebrate not just our personal calling, but our spiritual community. Because it's in those times that we need to recognize that God has assembled for himself a family of faith and we are members of it. We are brothers and sisters. He is our father. That family tie is the tie that binds. That family tie is what's necessary as we walk through difficult seasons in life, as we look to one another, as we lean on one another, even as we grow in our giftedness. It's all done within the context of the local body that is the spiritual community, the body of Christ. Paul goes on and on about this throughout the New Testament when he talks about the body. He says that the body, the one, is made up of what? Many members. And each member is functioning according to its specific calling. But together and collectively, we operate as one. Therefore, the body is built up and held together by what every joint and ligament supplies. Ultimately, until we ascend into the maturity of Christ, who is our head. Paul wants us to understand that we can celebrate today. We have reasons to be glad. We have a spiritual family. But understand this, that times in ministry, you're going to grow weary of that family. Family will be difficult to be around. 
Some of those family members in your church or in your spiritual community may hurt you, may criticize you, may subtweet you. They're going to do all kinds of things to antagonize you. Don't begin to resent the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the bride of Christ. And he is meant to be loved and served by us who have been called to do so. Also, perhaps just a word of caution and reminder, that we can't leverage the body of Christ for our own good. We're there to serve them. They're not there to serve us. So as you walk through difficult times, and as you experience and encounter difficult people in ministry, don't let your soul and your heart become jaded towards the ministry or towards the people of God. Serve the body of Christ with love and with faithfulness, with joy, because God has given us reasons to be glad. We should celebrate our spiritual, our personal calling, our spiritual community. But he hasn't just given us reasons to be glad. That's only the first divine privilege as part of God's family. As members of God's family, we don't just have reasons to be glad. We also have reasons to be grateful. We have reasons to be grateful. Paul now transitions in his letter from his introductory comments and salutation to now a, a, a prayer for the Colossians. The prayer extends from verse 3 down to through verse 14. And it's really a two-part prayer. The first part of the prayer, he's, he's praising God for their salvation. The second part of the prayer, he's petitioning God as it relates to their sanctification. But this intercession also is instruction. It serves a dual purpose. Yes, it models for us how we ought to pray for others. But it also, by its content, by the truth that undergirds the nature of his prayer and the content of his prayer, gives us understanding of the reality of who we are as God's people why we have reasons to be grateful. Look at verse three, he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the first mention of thanksgiving in, in the letter to the Colossians, but it's not the only one. In fact, Paul mentions thanksgiving seven times in this letter. Once in every chapter as we have it divided, at least once in every chapter, and perhaps summarized best by Colossians three seventeen as he encouraged them, but whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanksgiving overflowed, it bubbled out of who Paul was and his understanding of his calling. It also bubbled out in gratitude for the Colossians themselves. And so he says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see now uh, a distinction between, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, between God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be important as we walk through the letter of Colossians. But here he's simply directing his praise and his gratitude to God as the architect of salvation and redemptive history, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, he says, it indicates not just a perpetual praying, but a regular praying. He regularly prayed on their behalf, and every time he did, every time he prayed for them, he thanked God for them. What was the essence of his thanksgiving? Why did he thank God for them, and how does it inform and infuse our gratitude? Well, like the Colossians, and what he begins to explain is that we give thanks for our saving faith. We give thanks for our saving faith. Notice what he says. We pray for you, always thanking God. Verse 4 now. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first and fundamental area of thanks and gratitude that he offers on their behalf. We thank God for your faith. We thank God that you're in the family. We are affirming that you are full-fledged members of God's family, adopted as one with us. And it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. But the faith in Christ Jesus here is not just a, a point in time type of faith. It's a continual faith. In fact, it means not just that Christ is the object of that faith, but he is the sphere in which that faith dwells. I would mention later on that he would encourage them to remain 
true to their faith or to cling steadfastly in the faith. He's describing it here the same way, that their faith that saved them will continue to operate in functionality, daily life, and in conduct. And he praised God for their saving faith, that that faith had transformed them. And that faith had become a testimony that had reached him all the way in prison in Rome. Thank God for our saving faith. That faith that's in Christ Jesus that continues to operate under his lordship is not something that we manufacture on our own. It is a gift from God. When you think of your faith, when you think of your positional status, when you think of your status as a member of God's family, do you look at yourself in a way that warrants that? Somehow thinks that God owed you that? Somehow thinks that you earned that? Well, we would never express it that way, but many times that's how we operate. So God saved us because we were something special. God saved us because somehow we deserved it. But in reality, it should make us more grateful because we didn't do anything to earn it. It was by grace through faith that we were saved. It's when the work Christ did on our behalf, and now that faith continues to operate under his lordship. We should give thanks for our saving faith. That's not all Paul thanked God for. He thanked God for their saving faith, but he also thanked God for their sincere love. We too should thank God for our sincere love. He says, we thank God, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints. The love that had been poured into their hearts through faith in Jesus Christ and what he had done for them now was being expressed through them to all the saints, to others who had experienced this same love. This love was binding them together. This love was operational. In fact, Paul would go on later on in chapter 3 to tell them that above all else, put all love, which will bind us everything together in perfect harmony. This love, this sincere love, this genuine love had transformed them. And faith and love throughout the scriptures always go together. John had mentioned it in his first epistle over and over, especially in chapters 3 and in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it culminates in, in verse 10 when he says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But then he goes on to say, if God then so loved us, we then too ought to love one another. He was thanking God for their sincere love. As you evaluate and look at your own life, would you characterize yourself as loving? Do you have a love for all the saints? Do you love God's people? Are you operating and abiding in that love? He thanked God for this love. When we experience God's love, that's when we're most grateful. Many times we grow distant from God's love because we feel like we've sinned our way out of it as though God's love doesn't extend that far and somehow God's mad at us. No matter what you've done, you're still within the grasp of God's love. Sometimes we don't just think that God's mad at us, we think that we don't deserve it. God, how could you love somebody as, as terrible as I am? You don't deserve God's love, but it's who God is that he loves us and has commended it to us through Jesus Christ. And when we become transformed by that love that we don't deserve, that we can't earn, and that we can't outrun, it's when that love grips our hearts that it begins to grip our hearts for other people as well. And that's what he describes here, this saving faith and this sincere love. But he didn't just thank God for those two things. There was a basis that undergirded them. He thanked God for their faith in Christ Jesus and the love they had for the saints. Verse 5 now, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. We shouldn't just give thanks for our saving faith and our sincere love, but we should thank God for our secure hope. You see, it was the hope that they understood that was reserved for them in heaven. It was the salvation and the understanding they had through the gospel of truth, as he goes on to say. 
that they begin to be challenged to and provoked to a faith in Christ. And when they experienced that love of God through faith in Christ is because they understood the hope that was awaiting them. And now they were living in light of that hope. This was not a birthday wish type of hope. This was a secure hope. Peter described this hope in 1 Peter 1 as this, this hope that will neither spoil, perish, or fade, but it's being reserved and kept for heaven in you. This hope, according to Paul in Romans 5, doesn't disappoint because we've had the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this hope that doesn't disappoint serves as the anchor to our soul, according to Hebrews 6. Therefore, then, Paul is able to pray for the Romans that the God of hope would fill them with joy and peace as they trusted in him that they might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're living a life filled with hope today. We oftentimes place our hope in too many other things, whether it be our proficiencies, whether it be our deficiencies, our hope is revealed to be less than adequate when they're placed in anything other than Christ himself. This hope is eternal hope and it's secure hope. It's sincere love and it's saving faith. The Christian trinity of virtue, faith, hope, and love binds these things together. And brothers and sisters, we have reasons to be grateful. Notice that Paul didn't celebrate or congratulate the Colossians because of these things. He directed his thanksgiving to God. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of these things. We're not praising you for them. We're praising him for them. As members of God's family, we have reasons to be glad, and we have reasons to be grateful. There's a third divine privilege as a member of God's family that Paul then embeds within this prayer. Not only do we have reasons to be glad and reasons to be grateful, we have reasons to be going. We have reasons to be going. Paul understood that you cannot divorce who you are from what you do. Paul understood that when you are adopted into God's family, you are simultaneously appointed into God's service. Hear that. Paul understood that when you were adopted into God's family, you were simultaneously appointed into God's service. And he begins to describe for them how that works, that the gospel itself that had transformed them becomes then the impetus for them to go. Look at what he says and how he describes it. The end of verse five now, he talks about this hope that they had heard of. He says, of this you have heard before in what? In the word of truth, the gospel. He mentions a similar phrase there at the end of verse six when he says, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth, the word of truth that is the gospel. This is the good news. And the nature of the truth of God beckons us, in fact, provokes us that we might go and share this. If it has transformed us, that we share it, that it might transform others. How so, you say? Well, it's because it is true. If it, in fact, is true, what do we believe and how does it motivate us or how does it provoke us? Think about the word of truth that is the gospel. The truth of God is the gospel message. The truth of God is the gospel message. The truth points to the exclusivity of Christ. In other words, it refutes every other error or religious belief, that which opposes its understanding. It's the truth of God, it's the gospel message, and Christ is the only means of salvation. So the word of truth, that is the gospel, highlights the exclusivity of Christ. But it also highlights the universality of sin. That the truth of God, that is the gospel, is that all of sin, humanity is in need of redemption. That exclusivity of Christ combined with the universality of sin then finds itself with the availability of salvation. That it's extended to everyone. 
the nature of the gospel message that everyone is in need, that Christ is the only redeemer, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, therefore finds its availability offered to anyone and everyone by faith. The truth of God is the gospel message. And the nature of the message itself compels us that there, are a, there is a lost and dying world in desperate need of the good news. The truth of God is the gospel message. Everyone is infected, but everyone is invited. This is the nature of the gospel message, and this is why it motivates us to share. But the truth of God is not just the gospel message. Notice one more point about this, that the truth of God is a global message. The truth of God is a global message. He describes it in verse 5, of this you have heard before, the word of truth, the gospel. But then he explains in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, he helps the Colossians understand, you're not the center of the gospel universe. I want to celebrate with you your salvation, but you're not the end of God's means. God has a different destination. It includes the whole world. This is one of the greatest things that you realize the first time you ever go on a mission trip. That the God who is working in your life can be working halfway around the world or all the way around the world in someone else's life simultaneously or at the same time. It's amazing to see and it's inspiring to see. And that's what he's reminding them of. He's not only telling them that God has changed you, but he's doing this all around the world and you are getting to participate in it. You have the privilege of that call in that community to operate within what the gospel is doing as it's multiplying, as it's bearing fruit, as it's increasing, as it also does since uh, among you, since the day we heard it, or you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Notice what Paul's doing here. It's Paul's celebrating with them and thanking God for their salvation. He is reminding them of how they received the gospel, that it came to them. Did you notice the verbs and how they're Phrased here, look in verse 5 at the end of verse 5. Of this you have heard. In verse 6, this gospel which has come to you. Down later in verse 6, he says, since the day you heard it. And then in verse 7, he says, just as you learned it. You have heard, it has come to you, you heard it, and you learned it. From where? From someone else. From Epaphras. From our fellow servant, our beloved fellow servant. He's describing for them, hey, listen, someone came to you and carried the good news of Christ. All these things that you're glad about, all these things that you're grateful for, all these things came as a result of someone else's faithfulness and obedience. Therefore, you don't just have reasons to be glad and grateful, you have reasons to be going. Because just like someone came to you, God is sending you to someone else. Notice how he describes Epaphras, our beloved, faithful, or fellow servant. Then in the next phrase, he says, he is a faithful minister. Literally, that word just means a faithful servant of Christ. You know what that means? He was fulfilling his responsibility, which was not defined by a particular position or status. It was simply what Christians are saved to do. As a faithful minister of Christ, he shared the good news with them. They heard it from him, and he had been faithful to Christ on their behalf and had made known to them your love in the Spirit. Think about what God had called them to do, to be witnesses, to be used by him because they had been transformed by the faithful testimony of this beloved brother Epaphras. Now they were occupying that same responsibility as faithful ministers of Christ. Would they take that responsibility seriously? I remember several years ago, Dana and I had the privilege of helping lead a, a NAM sponsored trip to Puerto Rico. 
As we were down there and as we were serving there and, and helping people in the, the local area rebuild homes and do various uh, construction projects and different things, we met a young girl who was there serving on the project. Her name was Laura Figueroa. We met Laura and talked to her and got to know her that week. And one morning we're sitting there at breakfast and Laura came out and she told us that it was her birthday that day. Laura was turning 16 that day. And just by way of making conversation, I said, well, Laura, did you, have you made a wish for your birthday? Is there anything you're particularly hoping to get? And she said, yes. My one wish today is that I would have the privilege of leading someone to Christ. That was her birthday wish. That morning as we began to, to tour the local areas and to go around to the different teams, we went to Laura's team and it was mid-morning. Mid and Laura wasn't with her team and I was wondering where she was until someone said, oh, she's actually resting, she's sleeping in the van. Well, I was kind of discouraged by this. Why would she be napping? She was so motivated and eager at breakfast this morning. And so I, I went out and I, I found Laura and I, I woke her up. I said, Laura, what are you doing? There, there's work to be done. I, what about your birthday wish? And she had the biggest smile on her face. And she said, God already answered my prayer. I led three people to Christ this morning. In the two weeks of that project, she led 10 people to Christ. The beauty of that story is that two years prior, that same NAM-sponsored project was working on her sister's home. That's how Laura came to faith in Christ. Laura then took what she had received and passed it on to others. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the nature of the gospel, that we have reasons to be going. It's the gospel message, and the truth of God is a global message. You know, we oftentimes separate these things, but oftentimes in Scripture we see them combined, that the nature of our salvation promptly and immediately leads to mission. You see it most clearly perhaps in Romans chapter 10. The verses that we celebrate as a, a personal decision to trust Christ, right? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. First with your heart that you believe and are justified and the mouth you confess and are saved. And the verses that immediately follow, he begins to describe then, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they preach unless they are sent? Therefore it is written, blessed are the feet, those who bring the good news. This is our responsibility. It's what God has called us to do. One final point in this passage. Yes, we have reasons to be glad. Yes, we have reasons to be grateful. And we have reasons to be going. But the rich theology of this passage cannot be overlooked. Notice that he mentions all three members of the Godhead in this passage. Did you notice that? In verse 2 and verse 3, he explicitly mentions God the Father. Throughout the, ver the verses, he mentions in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, down again in verse 7, Jesus in verse 8, he mentioned the Holy Spirit. He said, what's the important? Well, as members of God's family, this gives us the greatest understanding of what it truly means to be family. That we individually are functioning according to our roles and responsibility, and yet are united perfectly as one. That we exist in community together, and that we, like God, are missional by nature. But the responses and the privileges that we have to be glad and to be grateful and to be going, all flow from the persons of the Trinity, and you can see how they relate. For instance, our adoption by the Father should provoke us to praise Him with gladness. Our redemption by the Son should motivate us to follow Him with gratitude. 
and our conversion by the Spirit should empower us to obey Him by going. We have reasons to be glad. We have reasons to be grateful. And we have reasons to be going. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your divine love for us. We thank you for your word and its timeless truth. God, we thank you and we celebrate the reasons to be glad and the reasons to be grateful that as members of your family, we have been adopted to share in the privileges of salvation. But God, we also thank you this serves as our reasons to be going for the privilege to participate in the gospel mission as members of your family thank you oh god we praise you we celebrate these things in jesus name amen thank you again for listening to this chapel message from southeastern baptist theological seminary if you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level including doctoral studies we hope that you consider us if you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.